You're listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor Dan Helix titled The Church at Pergamum, which is part five from our You've Got Mail series. For more information, please visit creekside.org. So there's this pastor, and he just gets into this new church, and he's knocking on doors and going and talking to people in the community, and one day he knocks on this one door, and he can hear somebody in there, he knocks again, he hears someone, so finally he knows they're not going to answer the door, so he takes out his card, and he puts down Revelations 3.20, puts it on his business card. The next week in, 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 the, in, the, in the offering is the same business card, and underneath it it says, Genesis 3.10. Well, here's the thing. You see, Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who would open the door, I would come in and dine with them, and they would dine with me. Genesis 3.10 says, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked. <laughs> So, if you have been reading the book of Revelation, and since PT has, has made it very clear that this is what we're doing, I know that you have all underlined and highlighted and, and otherwise bookmarked Revelations for a few weeks now, right? You probably know everything I'm going to say, but humor me. Last week, Terry touched on that whenever John, or rather Jesus, through John, addresses the church, he says things like, to the angel in the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, to the angel of the church of Pergamum, etc. By the way, is it Pergamanians or is it Pergamumians? I haven't figured that out yet. But there's a couple of theories And that's really all they are because all we can do is suspect we can't know exactly what this is referring to. For example, one theory is that Jesus is relating to an ethereal guardian angel for the church. And we know from Hebrews 1.4, there are ministering spirits for every believer and then they exist. But another theory is that the angel is a messenger, is the messenger who's bringing this letter that John's writing on Patmos. So we know there had to be messengers. That's another theory that that, that's the angel. Another theory is that the angel is the bishop or the church to which these letters are delivered and they are delivering the message or reading the letter as it were. I think that's probably the most plausible one. But in each of these letters in the To the seven churches, John starts out with, these are the words of him who, don't get lost here, so I'm going to go through them, get the bigger picture. To Ephesus, it was him who holds the seven stars in the right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. To Smyrna, these are the words of him who is the first and last and who has come to life again. To Pergamum, today's focus. The words of he who has the two-edged sword, I know where you live. Oh, hello. 
to Thyatira. It changes a little to the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and feet like burnished bronze. Sardis, the words of him who holds the seven spirits and seven stars, I know your deeds. Philadelphia, the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key to David. And finally, to Laodicea, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. In each of these instances, God is sending a message not only to those who remained, those who were there, but also and importantly to those who came after us. And each church addressed gets lessons, some for correction, some for instruction, some for encouragement, a clue how to live right in each of them. So today, we concentrate on Pergamum. And the scripture goes like this. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles, if you're one of those, when I bring my word, it is. This is my Bible. You can tell that it went through seminary with me some many years ago. It's all marked up, and now I got to get it rebound. Okay, fine. Revelations chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church of Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Notice he's not calling everybody out. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So in order for us to really hear what's being said beyond the time it was written in that day for today, because we all know 2 Timothy 3.16 all scripture is God-breathed and useful for correction, uh, pardon me, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So we know that all scripture is for us to hear and learn from. So in order for us to glean the intent behind the message, behind the scripture for us today, we need to sort out a couple of things. First, who has the two-edged sword? It's Jesus. It's very clear. Christ, one edge to destroy the enemy and the other to clean and purify us. Then John writes in verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. I don't know about you, when I first read that, it was like right between the eyes. Oh. 
You see, Pergamum was actually one of the three cities that boasted of being the capital of Roman Asia, though both Ephesus and Smyrna would probably take exception with that because they thought that they were that city. And last week, Terry talked about the church at at Smyrna. Smyrna was a place that had tremendous amount of Caesar worship. But we will see not as much as Pergamum. In fact, what PT said last week was once a year in Smyrna, everybody had to do the burning of incense, worshiping Caesar, but that was kind of lightweight compared to Pergamum, really. But here's the difference and possibly why John calls this place where Satan has his throne. Though the other cities indeed had a lot of idol worship and false gods, only in Pergamum were the citizens required to worship Caesar daily. And this was truly the seat of emperor worship to the point that if you didn't worship Caesar, you were a traitor to the Roman Empire. I heard the analogy of being in a communist country. Caesar was God, the state was God. If you disagree openly, they're gonna, they're gonna put your life in, in jeopardy. And indeed, they did kill Christians there. We know that, right? We see this mentioned with Antipas. And I've been in communist countries. And my experience is you could cut the tension with the knife. Probably had a little bit to do with the uniform I was wearing, but that's kind of a different topic. But for those of you that have been to a communist country during the Cold War, you know what I'm talking about. The point is that there was a huge tension between the, the, the Pergamum church, the Christian church, and the pagan Roman citizens that were there. Another possibility that John was calling this thing the throne of Satan is because there was a huge statue of Zeus on the hill there, and from a distance it looked like a throne and could could be considered Satan's home. Or possibly because of the temple of, uh, how did they say that in the last one? It's either got Escalapius, Escalapus, I'm not sure. But it's considered the god of healing which would, then they worship non-poisonous snakes. People would sleep in the temple that was infested with these snakes, hoping one would rub up against them in the night and they would be healed at whatever ailed them. And I don't know about you, but pardon me, guys, ew. (laughs) Look, when I hear something about Satan, I have to tell you, It's real. To me in my life, places that I've been in Mexico, Uganda, Satan is unabashedly extroverted. He shows himself in very palpable ways. And I felt the air go cold when he is near. I have seen a man writhing on the ground in Uganda, foaming at the mouth, the Christian pastors going over and laying their hands on him and praying the demon out. And minutes later, the dude's sitting up drinking water saying, what happened? That doesn't leave you unchanged. I have had men who suffer from addictions and other things come into my office and in the middle of talking with them, watch their countenance change hear their voices deepen two octaves 
and with another pastor there, looking, knowing what's going on, and, I, and, and say, in the name of Jesus, who are you? And had the man answer me in that deep voice, I am destruction. Whoa. And then pray that demon out. Been there, done that. So when I say Satan, I'm not talking about a concept. I'm talking about a thing. And what's the message here? John or Jesus through John is saying that even though these are the challenges you face in the place where you live, the home of Satan, temptations you have all around you, despite all that, you have remained faithful. Even when they killed one of your own, you did not swerve from being faithful to me. And I gotta tell you something, that's pretty encouraging, isn't it? For God to recognize For Jesus to recognize that even in this difficult place, they stayed faithful, that's pretty encouraging. On the other hand, or with the other edge of the sword, as it were, he continues, there are a few of you who have brought into the temple Balaamism which simply put was a perversion of the Christian faith, the food sacrificed to idols. They had orgies in the temple and all because of why? Well, because they got this forgiveness thing going on. You know, all we got to do is confess. It's okay. It seems that Paul's writings had not really reached there yet. Romans 6, 1 and 2 clearly says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And he says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So, this is why some have referred to this church as the compromising church. Because they looked the other way when some members engaged in this behavior, probably strong tithers, just saying, decided they were going to make their own religion based on the forgiveness Christ brought because it was pass, go, and collect $200. There's a word for this, you know. It's called syncretism. S-Y-N-C, syncretism. I will sync my beliefs with this other group's beliefs because it makes me feel good and then I don't have to worry about sin because once you start down that road... You can make that road go anywhere you want. Kind of throws it right back into God's face, doesn't it? Sometimes I think we see this in in, in our culture. Nobody here knows what I'm talking about, right? Not in our church, thank God for that, but in our culture. Just not in the just and not just in the country, in the US, but especially here in the Bay Area. We have all heard things like, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Look, God says he's the truth. God says he's immutable. That means he never changes. The truth is what it is, and I can't make it convenient to me because if he is the truth and he never changes, that means the truth never changes. So this is how the Balaamism thing started back then and and how it's even propagated now in our time. 
So Jesus, through John, is clearly telling them and us, I know you live in a place that accepts all sorts of idol worship and thinks immoral behavior is the norm and that the culture says it's okay. I know you live there. I know the enemy lurks around every corner and is tempting even the most steadfast of you. I know it's hard to live a quiet, normal life because others judge you as antisocial or intolerant or judgmental. I know you're trying to build your church so you want to look the other way when the new members feel like their newfound forgiveness is something they can throw back in God's face. But they do tithe, right? I know all that. But there's nothing okay with it, he says. Regardless if going along with the crowd makes your way worse, more smooth, regardless that it helps recruit new members, and sure, they hear the word. And we make new converts out of this growing faith movement, and, and they all want that salvation for themselves. But this is not what we are called to. This is not what we are called to be. Then he drops a hammer. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There's that two edged sword. Anybody here got a big brother or got an uncle? You know, that they kind of grew up with, like, like a big brother kind of a thing? Wouldn't it be kind of embarrassing every time you showed some sort of weakness or lack, he always came and fought your battles for you? Wouldn't it be just a little frustrating when you're trying to stand on your own two feet to have your big brother come and say, in trouble again? Okay, get out of the way, here I come. You see, that's what's going on here. Actually, with the teachings they have, I think Jesus is saying, look, I gave you the tools. I will be your strength. Now use them. I gave you the ability to stand up on your own. You have the resources of the Holy Spirit. Use your faith to give you the strength to stand up against those who would have you compromise and stand your ground. You don't need the food sacrificed to idols. You don't need the snakes to heal you. You don't need to hurt each other with immoral behavior. If you don't use what has been given, I'm going to have to do that for you. And I don't know how you folks feel about that, but, but I'd be a little embarrassed if after having been taught how to fight the battle, it's called the sword of the spirit. Having been taught how to fight the battle, the teacher has to come and fight my battle for me. He's going to give you that strength. He's going to give you that wherewithal. But then he has a super encouragement. 
Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And doesn't this tell us that even though one section or another of the letter may be pointed towards one church or another, but the lessons are for all of us. Do you hear that? But the real encouragement here, when he says whoever has ears to hear, that's us. Are we hearing this word or not? It's us. But the real encouragement's right here. Get this one. I love this part. To the one who is victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So God gives them and us, by extension, some encouragement. By he who has ears to hear is what extends to us. We are now in the hearing of this word, and he gives us some promises. First, the hidden manna. What is the hidden manna? Well, since manna was a type of bread that he gave the Jewish people in a a crisis situation, right? And Jesus, we know from John 6, 48, is the bread of life. The hidden manna can be even seen as the eternal life that we're promised as believers. Hidden. As in his word is hidden in our hearts. In a place so intimate. Because only God can know our inmost thoughts, the desires of our heart. Our love for him. And I've been through a thing lately. The other day I was praying, and I said out loud, God, I love you. And I got to tell you, all of a sudden, I got this wave over me, and I realized the reason is, is because it had been so long since I said, God, I love you. I try it. The other promise is the white stone with the new name. So the significance of the stone back then in their cultural times could represent God's purity and salvation, his forgiveness, the fact that we are started over with a clean slate because of it. But stones were used in adjudications, kind of almost like a secret ballot kind of a thing, when they would have a panel. They'd have a black stone, they'd have a white stone. If you got more white stones than black stones, then you were now not guilty. Kind of doesn't really work for us as believers, though, because one of the things we're all real clear about is we'd be guilty. It's a saying. Just as much as we're clear that we're forgiven through the blood of Christ, we know that there's a need for it. But that's the white stone. But what of this new name thing? Well, it was kind of common back then. And he named, he renamed Jacob Israel. Abram was high father. Abraham, which is father of multitudes. Peter, the rock, actually the little stone, but then again, Christ said, upon this rock, I will build my church in Matthew 16, 18. 
culturally back then, even the emperors, when they got into power, would change their names as well. Changing the name. Let's do the Jacob to Israel thing. Jacob is the deceiver, right? Heel grabber, deceiver, that's what it was. And Israel means prince with God. Isn't it interesting? He changed Jacob's name even though when one time in scripture, Jacob was asked who he was, he said, I'm Esau. So he's already lied about his name to begin with. And yet God restored him through the name change of Prince with God. So this is the significance of God giving us a new name. And this is what it means for you and me. If we're going to have a brand new name known only to us and God, isn't God kind of telling us how intimately familiar he is with us? I mean, think about it. Isn't this the part of the restoration promise uh, process that he promised with eternal life and forgiveness? You know, only a father could change the name back then. I mean, let's go to John the Baptist when Zechariah didn't believe that he was going to have a child with Elizabeth. They kind of muted him. The angel did, couldn't speak. And when Elizabeth had the baby, she said the name was going to be John. And the whole family in the community said, no, it's going to be Zach Jr., man. And he wrote down on that paper, it's John. Dad did that. And of course, then he was able to speak again. So now only our heavenly father can change your name now in his house, in his heaven. And this gift of a new name kind of marks our, our, our new and higher stage of responsibility and new and great authority. And it clearly denotes that we are known by God. He cares enough. He loves us enough to name us. This is us witnessing God taking the time to be, number one, the encourager. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. He's saying the same thing for us in this time. And I know where you live, yet you remain faithful to me. One of the messages that we glean from from this is that God starts off encouraging us before he goes to the correcting part. Or even the instruction part. He's reminding us to remember who we are and that we live a higher standard than those who worship other gods and live an immoral lifestyle. He is the corrector. We all fall, of course, every now and then. And we need someone to bring us back, don't we? God knows there are no perfect churches. My dad used to say, you know, the only perfect person died on the cross 2,000 years ago. Reminds me of the story of this guy, these two guys walking down the street, and when one guy says, he says, Sam, you ought to come to my church. He says, no, I don't go to churches anymore. They're all hypocrites. He says, yeah, I, says, I, I, I can understand it, but there's a church right down the street right here where they don't allow hypocrites. He says, really? <laughs> he said, let's go down there. So they go down there, and they knock, knock, knock on the door. 
And they knock, knock, knock on the door. And they open the door and here they, they hear this cavernous hello. Because there ain't nobody there. Finally, he is the counselor who is indeed bringing his people back into the fold. Listen to the words, whoever has ears. This tells us how important the relationship part of our faith is. God wants a relationship with us, not just lip service, but a conversation. Not one-way traffic from our lips, but to pay attention to his responses, whoever has ears. I never saw in the scripture, somebody can tell me I'm wrong here, but does it, where does it say whoever has a mouth in scripture? And yet he encourages our prayers. This is about who we worship. Our false gods don't have to be serpents or temple prostitutes or food intended as an offering for a false god. We have evolved. Our false gods are now cell phones, 401ks, sports teams for goodness sakes. I still say go Niners, I'm sorry. (laughs) Who do you worship? What do you worship? Worship simply is recognizing who or what is worthy of honor, respect, and our intention. So let me ask you the question, what's in your spiritual wallet? I know I don't look anything like Jennifer Garner. I'm really sorry. But. <laughs> you see, this is about the fight. Ephesians 6 tells us about the fight. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What John is saying is that you are caught in the middle of the fight. Clearly, it's the enemy because you are in his city. And the only way to fight back is the way that I taught you. Be true to your election. Overcome the temptation and you will reap the benefit. Continue to pray for each other. Continue to encourage each other in the word. So maybe you're saying this is all nice and religious and all, but you don't know what I have to go through here. You don't, you don't know about my situation. God does. He knows that you live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and this could just as easily be where the throne of Satan is located as it was in Pergamum. He knows the financial struggles you have. He knows the temptation to let money issues distract you from worshiping him. He knows about the struggles you have at work and the temptations in so many areas. He knows about the family problems that you're dealing with. Yeah, he knows all that dirt. And he says, to the one who is victorious. Wow, hallelujah. Despite all of those things, I still am victorious because of who I am in Christ. 
Yeah, yay God. To the one who is victorious. He's calling us victorious. And he's not talking about the Super Bowl, just saying. He's talking about life. He's talking about your life. Victorious over your challenges. Encouraging you through the dark times. And with the promise of better times, I will give you some of the hidden manna. Please do not mistake this for some prosperity thing because it's not that. It's, 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 it's not that type of thing. It's a victorious type of thing. Saying you are an overcoming because I am with you. I have named you. I have brought you all of, out of all of that stuff and you will be with me. Now how's that for victory? I'd rather be, I'd rather have victory than be a victim, Right? So the church at Pergamum has so much for us to see about how God wants to be with us. This is a great part of this letter. Hope you've been blessed by the hearing and the reading of the word, the parsing of this word today. Let's pray. Oh God, you are so awesome. You are, are so what all of us need. Help us to pay attention, to listen to what you have to say. Help us to be faithful to you and your word. God, receive our praise that comes from the purest part of each of our hearts. Because we praise you because you are worthy of praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.